Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to be a thought-provoking journey through the scriptures. Every weekday, my friend and fellow pastor Barney Estes and I walk through the Word of God verse by verse. As always, we'd love to know your thoughts about today's episode. You can hit us up at Pierce Point Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So we're one chapter away from the end of the Gospel of Luke, and the bumper intro is still true. We're still friends, so life is good. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, As we kick into uh, the final part of chapter 23, verses 26 to the end of the chapter, I just want to share a a comment from the Talk It Over section. Emily Burcham had chimed in uh, several weeks ago because, of course, she was on the reading plan when we were actually supposed to be reading it, and uh, and she had uh, she had said for years she focused on the crowd. Here's her words: How unbelievably terrible that they would call for the release of a clearly guilty man. Yes, it was prophesied. Yes, God knew what they would do. Yes, Jesus came to die. Yet now I see how powerfully beautiful it was, and it is. We are told Christ came to die for us while we were still sinners, and that is literally what Jesus did for Barabbas. Before Barabbas followed Jesus, uh, before he believed in Jesus, before he loved Jesus, Jesus took his place on the cross. What love and although I absolutely love the focus on Barabbas of Emily's comment, the, the focus goes broader. It goes to the very people who are shouting, mm-hmm. trade Barabbas for Jesus. Mm-hmm. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. He, is, he is actively going to the cross for the very people shouting him down mm-hmm. and, and wanting him to, to be crucified in the place mm-hmm of a murderer. And that to me is a, a staggering, staggering story. Yeah, it is humbling. It is. We, we see what seems to be a, just an in, injustice of massive purport, proportion here that they would crucify an innocent man. But without that, we have no hope to be redeemed. Right. We have, and that, and and it it just it is hard as we said yesterday it's hard to read this it's hard to think about that but without this happening we have no hope in this world as far as uh, as far as our standing with God so it's so important and and it, it's uh, but it is it doesn't make it any easier to read some of the no. horrible. Uh, details. No, Emily's Emily's statement though is just really powerful because if you put it just in that in that perspective of the one guy, Barabbas, yeah. Jesus is dying for him. Absolutely. And and then when you expand that bigger, he's dying for all of us. Yeah. Uh, while we while we are shouting him down powerful. Mm-hmm. So verse 26 through 32 deals with uh Simon, uh, Simon of Cyrene who is going to bear the cross of Jesus himself or for our Lord which is uh, in and of itself uh, a tremendously unique story. And then verses 33 uh, to 49, we deal with uh, another subset of this, which is the crucifixion, and then Jesus being buried to wrap out the chapter. So we're just going to we're going to tackle it verse by verse, uh, starting at 26. What stands out to you, sir? Well, I think we see this this story start to unfold, and and we know that by the time that this this we're into 26, Jesus has faced a, a, several beatings and scourging and 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 
Not only that, I mean, I, I think we have to understand that there was an emotional stress of this. We know how that he was probably the only one that understood that he was going to bear the full wrath of God. He was going to become sin. I, I, I cannot imagine, even though the physical piece of this is really hard to uh, comprehend, I think the emotional piece may even be harder for us because we don't understand and can't comprehend that the, the stress of saying, I'm going to suffer the full wrath of God for the sins of the world. Yes. Yeah. One of the, one of the components to Luke's gospel that we, we don't have a, a, quite ironically, actually, we don't have a very vivid or detailed picture of mm-hmm. is the scourging that took place. And, and when we, we talk about this, we're talking about the, the details we see in John's gospel. We're talking about the brutality of the Roman scourging that would leave him desperately weak in this journey that he's about to be on from the place of his scourging all the way to Golgotha, all the way to the mount where he is going to be crucified. So verse 26 says, when they led him away, they seized a man. So we've we've skipped uh, quite a drastic amount of what's happening. We go from a trial of crucify, crucify, to when they led him away, they seized the man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us uh, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things... When the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. So this this story is a very interesting story. We're going to go in detail on, on Jesus' words mm-hmm. here. But uh, Simon of Cyrene is carrying quite a brutal cross here. It's, it's no small um, it's no small piece of wood, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, Jesus may seem strong enough to speak, but it doesn't mean that he is he's very strong in this mm-hmm. moment. Oh, he's he's taken such a physical beating and 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 the uh there the this this crucifixion thing and we're going to talk more about that and understand that better, but it was uh he he was like all others that had been crucified. He was going to be forced to carry the cross beam of the of the of the crucifix or the cross that he was going to be uh, crucified on, the weight of that they estimate of the of the uh, of the entire cross, the the vertical piece and the horizontal piece would have been about three hundred pounds or so, but the crossbar would have weighed anywhere from seventy five to one hundred and twenty five pounds. So, when the victim is made to carry, and they all were made to carry their cross or drag it, whatever it was that they could do, because most of them would have been scourged at this point or prior to this they would be stripped naked uh their hands were often they would be tied to the beams uh to keep just so that they had to carry the cross and this and uh the the very the very act of this and the very uh the scourgings and the beatings that have taken place 
he's weak and he's having trouble carrying this cross physically. Yes. Yeah. And, and you, you pointed this out yesterday in the podcast that uh, this Roman scourging that preceded a crucifixion uh, was, was so severe that in many cases, even the scourging caused death. So when we talk about Jesus being weakened by this scourging, we have to understand it is a deep weakening that was happening. And every criminal who goes to execution, uh, according to according to Roman law, every every criminal who goes to uh, to their execution must carry his own cross on his back. This is uh, we can you can find this yourself in Plutarch's uh, writings on the divine vengeance. Um, this is this is all well known. That would be uh, found. Um, obviously in some in, in ancient writings but the point that that I'm getting at is that uh, this was well known that these mm-hmm. people would have to carry this cross so it's already it's actually already a unique grace that Simon was made yeah. to carry this cross it's it's just unique that this would happen mm-hmm. but uh, he is Jesus is weakened by this situation mm-hmm. and it's a pretty pretty mm-hmm. staggering truth and it seems to me that it seems like if you just read this we don't this is our first, uh, and I think our own, well, let me back up, our, at least our first understanding of Simon of Cyrene. Now, there's some speculation by scholars about who he actually was, and we'll talk about that as we kind of walk through it. But but here is a man that is seems to be, according to the way it's described, and all, it, 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 he seems to be coming the other way, going the opposite direction as the group and the crowd that was following uh, Jesus as he was carrying this cross. So the Roman Roman soldiers, it was not unusual for a Roman soldier to grab someone, and, and if there was something going on, they said they needed their help, they would grab them, and you were absolutely forced to help and do whatever they said. They were in charge. So it wouldn't have been unusual if they saw that he wasn't going to physically make it to the to the to the uh, uh, to Calvary's hill that they they get this man who's seemingly an innocent bystander who's just <laughs> going along the other direction minding his own business and and make him to carry this cross because they see that in other words Jesus probably may not have physically made it there yes. so yes uh, uh Simon is uh, Simon is said to be coming in from the country. The important thing to remember on the timeline is that this is actually early in the day, and it's also Passover, which means he's not working. This is an important component to Simon's kind of Simon's entry into the story. Um, uh, like Jesus and the disciples who had spent the night on the Mount of Olives, he was probably residing outside the city walls because there was this big to-do. Remember, it's it's Passover at this time. So coming in is just simply what they did um, on on these kind of situations. So he was coming in, and they they... It's like random. <laughs> there's a guy, looks like a good guy to pick up. Now, that is debated. There are people who believe that there's something more going on there. But um, from what we see here in the text, it seems that Simon is just coming in uh, to participate. All of this is happening when it ought not to be happening anyway, according mm-hmm. to Jewish law. So I, I believe we referenced that yesterday as well, 
with the with the trial for Jesus, all of these things were supposed to be delayed, and the innocence of a man was the more important thing, and they were supposed to put it off until after these major holy days, but they wanted Jesus dead, and we've seen how brutal this was. So why am I bringing up all of these ridiculous details about what day it is and, and, and how weak was Jesus and all of these things? Because I am fascinated by Jesus's words in the midst of this whole situation. He, he is walking through and there's large crowds of people and women mourning and lamenting. And Jesus actually turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Any of us, if we were put in half the circumstances of this, we would be wanting people on our side. We would be wanting justification for why we were being mistreated and all this other stuff. Jesus is 100% being mistreated. And yet as he is traveling in, he's saying, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Because because he's pointing out to them, although we're going to see this really powerful thing on Father, forgive them, they know not what they do later. Uh, here, he seems to be warning them of something. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. Why? You've crucified the Lord of glory. You crucified the God of the universe. Everything that he said about the temple being destroyed and every stone, there wouldn't be a stone left on the other one. All of that is in his warning here. Mm-hmm. He's, he's talking about them mourning for themselves. Don't yeah. mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves. Yes. There is problem coming, and, and it's because of what you're doing. For if they do these things, and this is, this is the warning to these individual women, they may have been disciples and followers of Jesus, if they're going to do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Like you, there's a lot of meaning in that. Oh but my anyway, gosh, yes. give me give me some thoughts here. I I love the fact that you pointed out that here in the worst possible physical situation that he could be in, and and it gets just gets worse minute by minute. Yes, he is. He's still telling these people, prophesying, explaining to these people what's about what's about to happen. He's never off. We think about we stay on task. He, Jesus was never off of the task. If, if you look in verse 31, he's quoting from Hosea 10, where that where Hosea is talking about a judgment upon the people of Israel, and and Jesus is, takes this takes this opportunity to continue on to let them know to warn them about the judgment that's coming. And you you've said rightly it is. It is, he's saying, if they're going to do these things when the tree is green, and, and what most scholars believe that he's, he's saying here is, if they are doing this to me, just think what they're going to do to you. I, I'm completely innocent. And yes. think what they're going to do to you. Right. Who are not completely innocent. Exactly. Now, these warnings or these, um, these cautions, if you will, uh, to the daughters of Jerusalem would have been well understood by um, 
um, by the people of Jesus's day. We can go back just a small search through scripture. We'll, we'll prove this out. Uh, you can go through Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Ze- uh, Zephaniah, and Zechariah, and you'll see reference over and over to, O oh, daughters of Jerusalem, O oh, daughters of Jerusalem. And it's always it always seems in connection with a warning mm-hmm. of something that's coming down on them. So Daughters of Jerusalem is uh, is connected to prophecy about suffering and tribulation that would come, and it would often come on the most vulnerable in their society, which happened to be women and children. We've, we've read already that in what most people conclude is eschatological views or end times views, which I would argue were 70 AD views, uh, things that were going to come when the temple was destroyed. Uh, he warns mothers and children. He warns mothers of young children. Mm-hmm. This is a common warning because they were the ones who would be well, they would be victims just like everything else, mm-hmm. because when judgment came, judgment was merciless, mm-hmm. and it came crushing down. So the, These would have been shocking words in 29, where he says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. These would have been shocking words, because the Jewish customs would have been to bless someone who was having kids. It was it was a blessing from God to not be barren, to have kids. And this was this was a complete turnaround of that. So what he's saying here would have caught their attention in so many ways, but not the least of which would be, wait a minute, I thought it was blessed to, to have kids. I thought God said that we, yes. we needed to multiply. And he's saying something completely the opposite. So the the situation that he's warning them about here is severe for him to turn this around and say, it's going to be blessed when you don't have kids in this situation. Yes. And here is why this is such a significant thing. Because modern preaching has centered on what we're going to see in verse 34. And, and, And rightly so. What an amazing passage where Jesus is calling out from the cross or, or arguably from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Okay, so so there's this cry out for Jesus, and you and I all hear you know hear this and go, of course they know what they're doing, and but we've heard sermon after sermon. I've preached sermon after sermon where I'm dealing with these kinds of things, especially during Easter season, where you say, isn't it amazing? to think of being like the Lord of glory and forgiving people even when they're persecuting you or paralleling those words with with Stephen's words in in the book of Acts where he kind of echoes our Lord and he forgives the very people that are stoning him to death. Now, that's what you hear in modern preaching. But here is what you have to keep, we all have to keep firmly in our mind. Jesus is still offering a... Uh, a pronouncement of judgment and doom. Mm. And he does it within within a paragraph. He does it on the walk to the cross. On one hand, we have verse 29 through 31 that says, by the way, it's going to be better for the wombs that never bore because, because doom is coming, judgment is coming. And then we get to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What are we to conclude with this? Are we to say, oh, Jesus changed his mind. Doom isn't coming. No, doom was still coming. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
it appears, is a message that is forgive those who ignorantly do what they don't know what they're doing, right? Who are ignorantly walking this path out because verses 29 through 31, again, it's not a call to repentance here. This is a pronouncement of judgment and a pronouncement of doom. There's no way to wiggle around this, okay? So how is it that on one hand, we have a pronouncement of doom and on the other one, we have forgive them for they know not what they do. Why even pronounce doom if you're just going to forgive them? Mm -hmm. We have to ask the question, who is he forgiving? What what is happening here? Exactly. It's really staggering. There there is a there's and there's a there's an odd glimmer of hope in this in that what Jesus has been saying all along, the story's not changed. The the situation has not changed. And I and I I I think back to what what uh, Peter and John and those that were that knew him and those some that were in the crowd that loved him followed him and and were wondering how could this be that he would that th- this would end this way he's going to a cross they know exactly what's going to happen to him and he and and there is a the glimmer of hope that says what I've been telling you all along is still true. Yes. It, this doesn't. This is part of the truth that I've been t- t- telling you, and it is so in such a an odd sense, almost a morbid sense. There's a glimmer of hope in what he's saying yes. because the story's not changed. It's been the same, and it's being the same. Yeah, and and his and his statement here also is really important to be read through the lens of he is enacting judgment uh he or he is calling out judgment that is coming on a disobedient Israel a disobedient Jerusalem who has stood defiantly against uh the god of the universe his justice is still going to be meted out uh, his mercy, though, is an amazing thing, which we'll see in just a second. Now, um, you alluded to the barren women piece, and I and I couldn't agree more. We've got to stress the idea that this really, this really is a horror that he's that he's articulating here. This isn't just this. Uh, these aren't cheap words. So he's not just saying ah, barren women. You know, I'll just throw out something that seems mm. seems kind mm. of tough. No, to these people, this would have been a horrific, childlessness, disgraceful shame in all of Israel. We we know this throughout all of Scripture. I mean, uh, it, back in Luke one twenty five, this is the way that the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me and He took away my disgrace among men. What was what was Mary's or what was Elizabeth saying in this particular situation? She was saying that God had taken away her disgrace because he gave her a child, because to be childless was disgraceful. Um, In Genesis 30, verse 23, so she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. To take away your reproach meant that to be childless was a reproach. It was a condemnation. Isaiah 4, verse 1, uh, for seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear out our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. It, it was this. It was this need to bear children because without it, you judgment was upon you. God's judgment was upon you. So, so this statement here of uh, of 
being barren, blessed are the barren, was a was a it was horrific. Yeah. It was just it was, flat out absolutely. horrific. Absolutely. And Jesus is is saying here this this is while this is a while you're weeping over me, you are uh, you should be far more concerned about those that are rejecting me. And I, I love, and I, I I I wasn't going to read this this little small piece, but I love it. Charles Spurgeon, who was that they called him the Prince of Preachers, has has spoken some of the most poetic commentary that I've ever read. Listen to what he says about these verses. He says, and when he's talking about Jesus and Jesus saying that they'll begin to say mountains fall on us and and to the hills cover us. Jesus spoke this in a greater sense, knowing the fate of all who reject him. You need not weep because Christ died one-tenth so much as because your sins rendered it necessary that he should die you need not weep over the crucifixion, but weep over your transgression. For your sins nail the Redeemer to the accursed tree. To weep over a dying Savior, and I love this, is to lament the remedy. It, were, it would be wiser to bewail the disease. I, I, I am just, it's awe-inspiring to me, but it, it brings completely a picture in my head of Jesus saying, hey, I understand why you're sad, but you need to be sad over over the rejection of me. The very thing that I'm going for is what needs to be cried over. Yes. Yes. So, so amazing. So not only do we see this uh, in the text, not only do we see it so beautifully rendered in Spurgeon's words, Jesus goes on and actually, actually talks about <laughs> their appeal uh, to get away from this kind of misery that they're under, right? He says, behold, the days are coming when when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs which never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Why? Because they have nothing to contend for because this tragedy is so horrific. It is so broken. Verse 30, though, is really interesting. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things, when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This idea was to cry, to be spared from further punishment. Mm -hmm. So you'd rather have the mountains fall on you? Mm -hmm. Uh, This comes from Hosea chapter 10, but it it is just an amazing idea that, that this tribulation that is coming even though Jesus is going to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, uh, or at least to some, the idea here is that those who reject Jesus, they're going to they're gonna wish they had never been alive. Yeah. They'd wish they'd never been born. I mean, this is, wow, this is just staggering. Yeah. Staggering. It takes me back to him come weeping over the city when he's when he was looking over the city of Jerusalem and, and talking about how many times that he he could have if they would turn to him, he he could spare them this. And and but he he knows that now that that's obviously not going to happen. Yes. And he and he knows that from knowing what's going to happen in the future. And and but the very thing that they're crying over is the is the thing that and 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 I I I completely get this. I 
it is a sad thing to this is a sad commentary to read it's a sad group of scripture to read but in in many ways like i said it is it is the hope of our world it's the very hope that caused hope in this world the very thing is him going to this cross but it is my yeah what an amazing uh, group of scriptures reading just a an interesting piece you know some someday we will be able to walk through verse by verse through the the great book of revelation but in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, we see this kind of same terror unfold under what is um, under what is known to be the breaking of the sixth seal. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses for you. Uh, now, where this lands in, in the story of history is definitely contested and debated. It's a, it's a challenging piece, and I don't I could I could offer opinions, but that's all they are. But verse 12 through 17 says this in Revelation 6. It says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun came became black and sackcloth made of, uh, as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Now, all of this sounds really reminiscent of what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. There's this earthquake, and there's this darkened sky and everything. Then verse 13, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. This is... This is a figurative language, but still interesting. As the fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind, and we know from the scriptures that the fig tree would, uh, the unripe figs or the non-producing often represented Jerusalem that Jesus curses. And then verse 14 says, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, which is why people would look at this as a eschatological future, some far off end that is coming. Verse 16, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand the idea is is that this is the same imagery that we see and the imagery is a terrible judgment so again i'm pointing out a crazy juxtaposition that as modern day preachers preach, they often love to focus on God standing on the or, uh, hanging on the cross and saying, "Forgive them, for they know not what they do." When in the same journey to the cross, he actually lays out a very deep judgment that yeah. says, "You're going to wish mm-hmm. that the mountains would fall on you when this comes." So, where's forgiveness? Forgiveness is for those who repent. That yeah. is the fact. It will never change. It is what the scripture conveys. Absolutely. So verse 31, uh, for if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when, when it is dry? And I believe you've already spoken to this well. Verse 32, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And so we have this picture of these two criminals. So let's jump right into 33. And we're going to walk through the crucifixion. Won't you? Won't yeah, you lead us off? They, in this? Well, they. This this story is 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 difficult, and because it 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 brings to mind all of the physical attributes of of what happens when a crucifixion happens, and we have some details of this. And while Luke uh, doesn't go into some of it, we know that. We know that crucifixion was not un- uncommon in the Roman world. While the Romans didn't invent it, the Persians did many years before this. But the 
Romans actually perfected it to the point that it was almost a systematic execution, if you will. And as you've said uh, many times, the the scourging that that happened before a crucifixion would have would have at least weakened the prisoner enough to where they died rel- you know, relatively quickly. So it was somewhat of a, a, of a, uh, a a merciful death, if you will. But 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 the physical situations that come. But we're reading here when they're coming to this place called that's called the skull. This is verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And and we, so we we know a little bit from from some of the other uh, 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 scripture narratives on these guys, and we and we hear about the one who actually called out while they were both at one point mocking mocking Jesus and saying, you know, we'll we'll, re, we'll read this, but. But one over a period of the hours that it took for this to actually happen turns and understands that and starts to see something totally different in Jesus. So, yes. I this is a this is great. I, I will we'll, we'll walk through it. Yeah, keep on keep unpacking it. So the the um, the place called the skull is really interesting, right? The word for skull in Greek is the word cranium which of course we know where we get our term cranium mm-hmm. from right so so in greek it's cranian in aramaic it's golgotha mm-hmm. which is where mark gets his rendering but luke leaves that off here mm-hmm. but this is the interesting one in latin the term for skull is calvary mm-hmm. we we speak of calvary in a way where we, we speak of it with fondness, but we have to think for a second, when we sing songs that talk about on Calvary, we're saying on the skull. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that an interesting yes. thing to think through? And so um, it's fun to know the, 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 the orid- origins of our words because, because we often don't catch the weight by these foreign terms that we're using. So again, the place called the skull, that's Cranian in Greek. It is Golgotha in Aramaic, and it is Calvary in Latin. So what a what a strange uh, thing to be rejoicing yeah. over that, that, you know, our Lord, you know, went up the skull. Yeah. Uh, but that is truly what happened. Yeah. And, and, and it might be as... You know, people uh, people conjecture it might be because the place looks like a skull. The yeah. the actual location looked like a skull, but nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, this is this is an interesting place. The place called the skull. This is uh, also in history most likely the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which is where this is located now. Uh, in Jesus's day, this side was uh, this uh, site or this place was outside the city walls. Yes. So it was he was led outside, and that was prophetic yes, that he would absolutely. be led out. And I love that you pointed out the words in this. I. I but the one I I because that's that's always that's always interesting to me because of the the different ways that we 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 uh, our language um, a lot of our language stemmed from a lot of the things that 
were said in, in, in Latin and Greek and, and, and in the Hebrew, more so probably in the, in the Latin. Even the word crucifixion is where we get our word for excruciating. It's excruata, and it is a term that, that's, that was the Latin phrase for, to describe crucifixion. And when we think of excruciating pain, that's how they got the word for that was from crucifixion. Yeah. And and or the Latin term ex cruatia, I believe it's called, but it is so it, it it's is just important. fun, isn't it, it? It is. It's important to know this because we use words so somewhat haphazardly sometimes. We do. Without understanding the the, the real meaning. And I'm there's I'm with there's you. another piece in our in in the nature of our culture that as Americans specifically, and none none of this is a is a dog on on that at all. It but what we are as a melting pot is very interesting. That what we do is we kind of adopt a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. When we adopt something, for example, it is not an English word Calvary. It is a Latin word Calvary, and it means skull. But in English, we've adopted Calvary. We never even attached a meaning to it. If we have a meaning, it is the place that Jesus went so that we could be saved and redeemed, you know, for eternity. But we adopt these, we we just kind of steal these words. These words are from another language and they have a meaning. Hmm. And so if we were to really employ them the the way they should be employed, we would have a further understanding of the weight of a story. But like you said, we use words flippantly or haphazardly. And and so in this melting pot that we live in, uh, some of the meaning gets lost just yes. because we want to steal a word and we go, well, that sounds real cool and everything. Well, be careful because words, words, uh, uh, I love Heiser's statement, Dr. Heiser's statement, he says, uh, words don't have meanings, but people mean things by words. People do. But in our generation, some of those meanings have been lost yes. because we've just been using them using them repeatedly with no meaning. Mm-hmm. Calvary, what is it? Skull, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Or excruciating, mm-hmm. uh, crucifixion. This is really powerful. So verse 34 goes on and, and So now we have this scene set up where Jesus is crucified with these criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Uh, All of this seems to now bring into the forefront what Jesus is saying back when he's talking to James and John. And he says, they say, can we sit on your right and your left? And he says, do you know what you're asking? Uh, well, he says, you don't know what you're asking. He says, can you drink from my cup and can you um, can you be baptized with what I'm baptized with? And there's an illusion, uh, and many scholars confirm this, but there's an illusion here to the place has already been reserved on my right and my left. That's the two thieves on the cross. Um, there's already been a place. G- God is on the throne and Jesus is at, is at his right hand. That means that who's at Jesus' right and left hand is irrelevant. God is at one side, right? Someone, if anyone, is at the, at the next piece. This seems to be an allusion to these two criminals being crucified uh, to the right and to the left of Jesus. Verse 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. 
And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Wow. Wow. That's the stupidest thing you could ever say. Oh, but my goodness, that's what yeah. they're going to do. Yeah. This is this this whole this whole interaction the next few verses are really uh strangely uh uh they're a lot of what they were saying here ends up being true but in a really odd sense it's it's ironically true in many cases Jesus has has actually in verse uh, 34 will recall back when Jesus said his own command to, to, to his disciples was to love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good for those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And, and he's, he's doing that. Mm-hmm. I, I, and then this whole casting of lots and, and for his garments. Now, we, uh, I believe that the Jews, would uh, they had... There, they, there were a couple of different layers of clothing, but this, these, these garments were being, uh, uh, they were the soldiers were casting lots to see who got the the best garment, and especially the one piece robe that they had put on him to symbolize his 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 royalty. But, but we, but we also see that in verse thirty four, that the him praying this prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In Isaiah fifty-three, was the, this this the prophecy that was fulfilled? It says, and uh, 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 fifty-three twelve says this. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He's interceding for those that are that are crucifying him. That's that's an amazing thing. And this, and I I I I find it ironic that some of the things, and we'll talk about this here as we get through this. But it is some of the things these folks were saying were truthful statements in an ironic sense. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this this brings us to this idea that we've hit on. We, we hit on it in the intro. We just talked about it when we talked about his, his uh, prophecy of doom just coming before this, and now his father forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, I think it's worth noting that Jesus would also tell us as disciples that we are to forgive those who trespass against us. Um, In the Lord's Prayer, he says, you should pray, Father, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Okay, there's an important component of forgiveness that has to be discussed, and that is our responsibility, our our command... uh, is to forgive. The question is, is that forgiveness effectual? In other words, does that forgiveness uh, remove the sin that they have done, or is repentance still required? Now, here, here's why this is really an important, uh, an important conversation, because I believe that Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do including 
uh, not only it, it includes not only those who nailed him to the cross, but all people. Okay, I, I really do believe that that's the case. However, his forgiveness is applied to those who repent and believe. Yes, okay, and I believe the scripture is very clear on this. So let's let's take this into you and me and how we interact with people and how we do what Jesus tells us to do, which is forgive those who trespass against us. Our forgiveness is given. Their freedom is contingent for them. Their freedom from their bitterness, from their from their guilt, from all of their stuff. It's actually contingent for them on them repenting and and confessing their sin. Our responsibility, Jesus' act on the cross of forgiving, is not a... Um, I know that this is controversial, and I know that people will really get upset with this statement, but let me explain why it's important. He was not giving a king's decree that they are forgiven. If he was, Jesus' words right here are all that need to be said. Yeah. Everyone in the world is forgiven. It doesn't matter what they do. They don't, need to, they don't need to repent. They don't need to believe. They don't need to be confessing his name before men so that he will confess them before his father. None of that matters. Yeah. Because if this is the decree of the king, it's done. It's not to be read that way. And I know that's controversial. But I believe you can clearly see it through the pages of Scripture. It is to be read as Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. And they are to repent. If they don't, that doom we talked about in 29, that doom we talked about in 28 through 31 is still waiting. Mm -hmm. It's still coming no matter what. And that is challenging for people. It is. Whether or not God's, God's forgiveness is effectual to those who believe, Mm -hmm. that's when it's effectual. Mm -hmm. Not until then. Yeah. Otherwise, this is universalism. Yes, he exactly. saved everybody by declaring, "Father, forgive them all, for they yeah. know not what they do." Yeah. Done. We win. Yeah, that's so important. I I love that 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 you pointed that out. It is, it it is it's it's very it's very interesting to read the words and to say, okay. Uh, some sometimes we have to figure out what he is not saying. Sometimes absolutely, and he is not saying, as you've well said. Uh, and everyone is for given at this point, and from here on out, everything's good. It's not saying that at all. There is a there. He he is about ready to pay the penalty. Now, accepting that that payment for that penalty is a whole other matter. But he's going to become sin so that they can become the righteousness of God. That's not an immediate flip of the switch when he brings it. They have to, at some point, there's a part for for them to play. You jumped in there with a most important scripture because when the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin, when we follow it out, it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What is the might become there? He became sin, period. He, he did it. It wasn't partial. It wasn't just temporary. It wasn't for some and not for others. It was he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
We become the righteousness of God by grace through faith. Yeah. We accept that truth and admit we are powerless to, to do this by ourselves. We confess that he has done it for us. That is required. And so the reason actually why I bring that up is a practical reason. And that is, our. so if you were ever offended, your responsibility is to forgive as your heavenly father forgave you. Mm-hmm. Their responsibility is to deal with their repentance. Their responsibility is. You cannot make somebody repent. Jesus didn't even make people repent. He called them to, but he didn't make them repent. And I think that there's something important about that. So if you have been hurt in your life and God has commanded you forgive, you must realize your forgiveness of a person is not in this res- in this respect, in this way. It is not contingent on their repentance. You be free. You obey God. You do what he's called you to do. They have a responsibility themselves. We'll see how that pans out. But you do your part. Yeah. I know that's hard, but that is what we're seeing in yes. all of this. Yes. And, and we get down into another, what I think is a controversial verse in 35. It says, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he has saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now, we know that, that there is a, that Jesus could have invoked the power of God and could have certainly saved himself. He could have done, done that. Had he done that, and I, I, that was never in the plan, and we know that was, ne- that was never in the plan. So their chiding of him here to, to do that and, and saying, look at this. This proves he's not who he says he was. No, in the, I, sa- I mentioned the ironic piece. This proves he's exactly who he says he was. Because without him staying on that cross, no one else has, 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 a, has a chance. No one else has any hope of being forgiven from their sin. This, the very thing that they said shows that he's not God actually showed that he was God. Yes, yes, very much. Uh, The psalmist David, he, um, he gives this amazing psalm in Psalm 22, and we see what we're seeing now uh, in this um, in this mockery that's going on. So in many ways, this again is prophetic. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, we're going to get to that point that is clear prophetic. Um, it says, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. We see these allusions to who Jesus is in this this agony of David. And then verse 7 is where it is. It says, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. This mockery is exactly what Jesus uh, was prophetically supposed to endure and what he does right here. These people are quoting 
ignorantly. They're yes. quoting their own scriptures they uh, because they don't see who this is. This is the son of David. This is, yeah. this is the Lord of glory. What are you doing? He is the chosen one, but you're, you're not able to see yeah. it. It's so important that we link the, 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 everything that Jesus is doing. We're, you, can, you can read about it in, in prophecy. It, it's, we have the ability to go back and see that. And it is quite amazing that these people had that same opportunity. They, they could have seen this had they known the, the, the Jewish scriptures. And Jesus could absolutely have saved himself by coming down the, from that cross. But what, what, we, what we need to remember, and, and we're fast-forwarding ahead, he did something far more amazing by staying on the cross and then three days later coming out of the grave far more wonderful than what it meant for him to come off of the cross. Uh, Yes, because in that, he only accomplishes... Uh, the proof of his power, yes. which is a distinctly human proof. Instead, he proves his divinity, and he prove and he proves he has conquered death. Yeah, and that is again, as you said, it's the most important piece yes. of all of this. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's absolutely staggering what what we're the, seeing in this. The other ironic piece of this was that he. In one sense, when they said in verse number 37, and I jumped ahead a little bit, he said, yeah. but if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. And they were saying, it's, if you, you saved others, but you're not able to save yourself. That, that, that was literally true. He had to become sin. He had to become yes. sin. So in the sense that what he was doing was still going to save others. But he had to become sin yeah. so that we might become the righteousness of God. So <coughs> ironic. Everything yeah. that you read in this is just so, so amazingly ironic to yes. me. I think it's powerful that now we have, we have even the uh, Roman officials mm-hmm. that are mocking him as well, right? It yes. says in verse 36, the very words that you just read are the soldiers who are mocking him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Understand the understand the mockery here comes from that comes from that political angle mm-hmm. that says, look at what we do to other people's kings. Look at what we do to other people's yep. kings. But nonetheless, they've clearly heard about this, this character, and they're like, well, save yourself if you're such a good king. Do that. It's, it's just brutal, the mockery that he's, that he's oh, undergoing. Yeah. So then verse 38, now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. I love the fact that the inscriptions tell the truth, even though they don't mean yeah. the truth. Yeah. They don't mean it, but they have said it. And Jesus is like, well, you're the one who said it. Yeah. So there you go. So verse 39, one of the criminals uh, who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? And remember that term is, are you not the Messiah? Are you not Messiah? Save yourself and us. So he had a right view of what Messiah would do. Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly for what we are receiving, what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, if we stopped there, we might actually conclude that this other man simply says, this guy is just a guy hanging up here, but he didn't do anything wrong. He believed something far more about Jesus, and we just have to keep reading. That's one of the greatest hermeneutical tools, interpretive tools you can employ. Keep reading. Verse 42, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. When When you come in your kingdom. The idea here is that he recognizes him to be what the other guy mocked him to be. He believes him to be the Christ. So he says, I don't understand. This is conjecture. I don't understand why the Christ has to die, but he is who he says he is. He's innocent. We're guilty. Stop mocking him. And yet this man who's suffering a similar fate, by the way, has the wherewithal to see this. Yeah. And to and to get it right, I think the Spirit of God is doing something here, uh, in my opinion. It's not yeah. written into the text of Scripture, but I think the Spirit of God is giving him strength to prophesy what is true. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is the Messiah. This There again, just an amazing piece of Scripture. We, we, we've heard for many, many years, I've, I've heard people talk about that this being the only deathbed conf- confession that you can be certain of that ever happened. Mm-hmm. And I... I, I I, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. Right. We don't, we, the, the very fact that, but I believe that there are people that wait till the end of their life. This man is obviously the prime example of that, but you're exactly right. He saw something and there was something going on in his mind and in his heart because we, we read that they, that at, at the outset, when this first start, started, they were both mocking Jesus and then one turns and starts to see and hear something over the period of time that they were on this cross, and 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 I I, I don't know exactly what all did happen, but he saw something in Christ, and so did others who were yes. watching who were not on a cross. Yes, but but it is he saw something that changed his heart and his mind yeah. to the point that he actually ask Jesus to, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. One of the, one of the geeky points again, this is just where you slow down and you, and you parse through the words and study what, what words mean and what they say. Hurling abuse is literally translated blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he, he was not just, you know, calling Jesus a name or, or antagonizing this, this was this is translated in the Greek as blasphemy. Uh, so that's what he's doing here in this situation. Now, I do find it amazing that in Scripture it says every blasphemy against the the, the Son will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, will not be forgiven. Uh, it would appear that even this could have been forgiven if the man would have repented. That would have been an absolutely amazing yes. thing. Uh, all of that aside, you, you mentioned the idea of the only deathbed confession. I, I hear people all the time using this as justification why you, you don't have to take baptism seriously that, that you know, because they're often arguing against the um, baptismal regeneration argument. That is that you are regenerated only if you undergo baptism. Here, here's what we believe as a church. Uh, we, we believe that baptism 
is we believe in what we would call it a believer's baptism in that and that our baptism is an outward sign of an inward condition kind of the same thing that happens on a wedding wedding ceremony where you exchange rings it's an outward sign the ring of an inward condition of the covenant that you've made um however uh, unlike many of our uh, colleagues that that hold to a believer's baptism, I believe that it is absolutely a non-negotiable command. You can't use the criminal on the cross as your justification for or against. You can't. Because why? It wasn't talking about that. That is not the scenario. It's not what's happening here. Um, you just can't use this as justification for anything. What we do believe is that Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, can we disobey making disciples? I think everybody would agree, no, we can't disobey that. Why would we then say, ah, baptism, that's just, it's up in the air. You do what you want with it. No, Jesus said it. We do it. That's that's the reality of this. But that's just a fun little aside yeah. there. Okay, let's keep rocking through this. Maybe we'll get to the end of 49 in our time today. So, verse 40 says, but the other answered, rebuking him, saying, don't you even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I love the the um, repentance and confession of this man, because yes. that is true there. Verse 42, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now that could be rendered, come into your kingdom, remember me today, um, which Jesus seems to prove in the next line, or it could be coming in as in his return, come in your kingdom, as in come in with its all, its entourage and everything. I believe 43 communicates that it meant that day. Yes. Uh, and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, right there is an absolutely fascinating idea because we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is this paradise Jesus is talking about? But <laughs> we may get there. We may not. Yeah. Yeah. I, through your thoughts. I, I love the fact that, that there, there seems to be a complete turning, a repentance, if you will. And I wonder, I wonder how this, this man knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. I, now, the likelihood is that he's heard about him. The likelihood is that he's uh, that the, the, by this time Jesus and some of his acts would have been well known. So, but at a point he turns and he understands the situation that he's in, and he believes he's being punished justly. Justly, and that's that is that's huge. That's huge to say. You know what? I deserve everything that I'm getting. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and that man who knows he justly deserves his punishment also uh, knows, it's amazing, he knows the other man justly deserves yes. his punishment too. And you notice that Jesus doesn't chime in to break up this little squabble between yeah. two thieves and say, hey, don't judge him. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> no, no, we can know. And we know a lot yeah. of things based on other people. And both of them are guilty. Jesus, though, yes. is not. And what we can conclude from these two things is that one mocked him and blasphemed him. The other believed him to be who he said he was. What a powerful thing. And as I believe, as a reward for that faith, 
because that's all that it was. Yeah. A belief in what he had said was, was true is true. Uh, Jesus says, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, this is a really interesting idea, and it's just, I'm going to throw out some ideas, stuff for us to think about, process through, um, because if we're not careful, we're going to jump into purgatory ideas and, and paradise and in-betweens of heaven and hell and all this other weird stuff here. But in the Old Testament, paradise could refer to a, uh, believe it or not, uh, park or a grove mm-hmm. of trees. Okay. So we see this in Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Nehemiah. We also know that, that this refers to the garden of the Lord or the garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. So when, when he would say paradise, it could refer to this. Now it also is largely argued that is it's this eschatological end, this, this end destination, this end place. So then, let's say that last one is true. The great dilemma is, what does Jesus mean by, you'll be with me today in paradise? What does he mean, you'll be with me today? And so here is another piece that's worth considering as you're, as you're studying this out. Today in this context could mean in this age. Today. You will be with me in this coming age, in this age that I am entering into. So there is yet another way to render this so that, so that we're, we're clear on uh, whether or not there's an in-between stayed or whatever. So it's, it's definitely a discussion that requires a lot more, uh, a lot more nuance, a lot more uh, a lot more uh, sound scholarship to really get to a good place on this. But I know that people wrestle with this. Just remember, there are many ways of looking mm-hmm. at these things at times that yes. that we have to be honest to contend with. I've, I've heard this compared to uh, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man and Abraham's bosom. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it would, I, I don't know if that's the same place or not, but it is... Uh, but uh, you hear a lot of different uh, uh, renderings of what exactly Jesus was saying here. What we do know for sure was that it was definitely it was going to be a place where this guy was going to be okay. Things were fine. If Jesus right. says it's okay there, then it's okay. You know, if he's saying today you're going to be with me, wherever he is should be fine. Yes, yes. So uh, the the. The challenges to those kinds of ideas, uh, the kinds of ideas of a purgatory or a or an in between state, are challenged by the clear evidence in Scripture that the resurrection is to happen at the end, and there's only one resurrection mm-hmm. of all things. So, so what would it mean? Is this guy is this guy in a disembodied place or or whatever? Just remember, it is definitely not. Today, you're going to experience resurrection. We know that that's not the case, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, because even Jesus that day had not experienced resurrection. Right. He would die on the cross, and then we would move on from there. Verse 44, keep on going with these tough ideas, but uh, it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of 
really odd things starting to happen whenever Jesus died. And this this first thing that that's talked about, this darkness that fell over the whole land, and we have there are some uh, some ancient uh, scholars and hi- historians who have noted some type of a darkness at this time. This has been written about uh, by many in that day, and there are many people that re- recorded some of these events that we read about in the scripture. This this crucifixion took place during the Passover season, and and we we know we know from history we know that the Passover was was always held at a full moon and scientists say that a natural that some people let me back up some people say this was an eclipse of the sun but scientists say that a natural eclipse of the sun is impossible during a full moon scientists will tell you so people that say well it was just an eclipse of the sun and there was wait a minute there was a full moon because it was during passover mm-hmm. time that that has not ever happened before, right. and hasn't happened since then yeah. up to this day. What a fun! What a fun yeah. piece of dragging science into this <laughs> and actually using it for a, a an awesome. So thing. and then you know the other, and and keep in mind that we we're talking about uh, uh, this darkness that that fell. It, this was a, this was at noon. This was at high noon yes. that this actually happened. So the sixth hour would have been high noon. So. And then the other thing in verse uh, 45, uh, the, the, it talks about the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. My goodness, there's all kinds of symbolism here mm. in the temple and the veil and how all that works. There is so many, uh, so many understandings of how that the Holy of Holies was now, had now been opened up and God had opened up the possibility of man going to the holy of holies through christ and it, it, there's there's so much here there's so much symbolism yeah. here just to share a bit of uh, a bit of kind of scholarly commentary on this in the new american commentary uh, it talks about the curtain in the temple being torn in two and here's here's what the commentary says it says according to rabbinic tradition uh, Yoma 54a, there were 13 different curtains used in the temple. Mm. It has been suggested that this refers to the curtain at the entry to the holy place, the one that was torn, the inner temple, because this could be more easily seen. It is best, however, to understand this as referring to the curtain at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, i.e. the place where once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. And now you see the symbolism. Because if the curtain is divided now by the death of Jesus, he has entered the most holy place. We're going to see this confirmed in Hebrews. He enters the most holy place and he makes atonement for the people. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. So I love how, I love how these commentaries just kind of pull those, those mm-hmm. ideas uh, into the forefront of our minds because sometimes we need to see those parallels. We need to see that old, old covenant idea coming, coming in. So Yeah, we see a lot of these things happening that, that the people of that day did, couldn't explain other than uh, those, I believe, that devout people who knew the scripture and understood what 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 uh, what Jesus had been saying as it related to the to the 
scripture that they knew, I think they understood what was going on here. There were there were some that did, and we're, yes. we we know that by the fact that we know that you know we we've mentioned in the, the last podcast about Joseph of Arimathea, you know Nicodemus, people who were devout, righteous men who understood the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for your own personal study, if you want to, if you want to give yourself to the entering the most holy place by Jesus, you can. Um, you can go to Hebrews chapter 9. You'll find that in verses 6 through 28 or Hebrews 10, 19, and 22. Um, so just for some fun study there. So as we roll into verse 46 through 49, Jesus crying out with a loud voice says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, mm-hmm. saying, Now, this is interesting praise, but look at what he says. Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his uh, acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. So you can see all of these people who had observed the spectacle, the crowds, could be Pharisees, Sadducees, all these different people. They're beating their breasts, and that seems to indicate it seems to indicate that they're they're appalled that this whole thing had to even happen, but that he was wrong, that he was a sinner. Um, but the acquaintances are staying there, yes. right? They're yes. they're staying right there. Um, I, I suppose many other interpretations could be given to the beating of the breast, but that's uh, that's how I'm I'm mm-hmm. seeing it. I don't I don't see the mourning. I, I don't see mourning in contrition, although that's literal, uh, a literal rendering of that. I don't. I don't know. It yeah. seems strange. They were just mocking him. Yeah, yeah. Did the earthquake change that? I mean, maybe. <laughs> po- possibly, yeah. I, I think the centurion, uh, this is, that's a very interesting thing to me because, as you've said, he's, the, his praise for God was, was that this man was innocent. Yes. He was, he was and, and the word innocent is, is righteous, right. essentially. This man was righteous. And, and he says this as, he's, as he sees him die. As he sees him dying, and that that's that's amazing. Now the other thing that Luke doesn't doesn't account for in here is that when Jesus said just and in this same time frame here, these moments here, when Jesus says it is finished, and 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 I I was amazed when I see this, and it it's it is interesting the different views of this that uh, some of the things that Luke had been told this story. By, and there's speculation about how who, who he talked to, but he had been told, and some of the others may have seen it. But but uh, it this word that Jesus used when he said it is finished, finished in the Greek is I'm and I'm going to give this a shot tetelastai, which means paid in full. It is paid in full, was what Jesus said. I uh, this <laughs> this doesn't sound like it's over, you know, it's as far as it is concerned with, with the folks that are looking on who understood what Jesus was about. Many of them were thinking, oh my gosh, this didn't end the way that we think it's going, that we thought it was going to. We thought he was going to win. We thought he was the king. We thought lots of things. And what he says at the last would have been like, wait a minute, it's paid in full. It's paid in full? Yeah. Yeah, it's paid in full. 
Well, that's it for today, guys. And if you would, please like and share this podcast with your friends. And finally, remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work.